Hello, welcome to Beyond the Fundamentals. In this video, we are going to discuss the end game of bad faith communications. The end game of bad faith communications. We're going to be looking at an article from the Consilience Project titled The End Game of Bad Faith Communications. We're going to go through this and we're going to look at it from a Christian perspective because this video, this this article is written from a socioeconomic political kind of perspective, journalism, that sort of thing, politics. We, as this is a Christian uh, channel, we are going to look at it from the perspective of a Christian. How do how can we use this information? The Bible says that the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Okay, and it's a little disheartening to me that we can't get good content for how to, how to interact with people within Christianity, unfortunately. And the people who are modeling Christ the best tend to be doing so from outside of professing Christianity. This ought to be very concerning to us, all right? And I definitely want to look at this. If you want to, if you enjoy what's going on here and you uh, want to uh, financially support what's going on here, we couldn't do this without financial supporters. It takes time, space, resources uh, to put this kind of content together. And so the details to support this effort to continue seeing these kinds of videos and more like it are, are in the, are in the details below. I'm looking at the chat already, already got some folks in there. See, uh, I see several of you. Hello, Wade Sturs. Good to see you here today. What I want to do is look at a couple of passages of scripture real quick. And we have looked at Ephesians chapter four, verse 16, a whole lot on this channel. And in this passage, we have an edification model where instead of just some people doing broadcast ministry, like the apostles and prophets and evangelists, there is a transition. See, these guys are doing the edifying here, but there's till we all come to the unity of faith. Well, when we come to the unity of faith, the description of this is that every joint, every part is working together, making the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. The body of Christ is intended to edify itself. And you, I mean, personally, you, not somebody else, not the Sunday school teacher, not the deacon, not the preacher. None of you are intended to take place, to play a an active role in the edification of the rest of the body and also in the light of Christ that shines out from the body toward those that are without. The Bible says walk in wisdom toward those that are without. So we want to be able to speak the truth in love and we want to grow. That's what we're aiming at in this video. And we don't want to be children. We want to be anti-fragile. These guys are naive and they are children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. So what we, what we don't want to do is is be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. We have a super chat already from Manny. Uh, so thanks. I appreciate the super chat. <clears throat> so <laughs> so what we want to do is we want to we want to be anti-fragile. Now there's another place in, in the past in the Bible in Colossians chapter four, verse six, okay, where it says let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt that ye, may know, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man, okay? There's a lot of stuff in the Bible about dialoguing with other people. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 21, the, the lips 
of a righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. In Proverbs 15, verse 4, a wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. Perverseness would be like profanity, profanity where it would disorient you in how you walk. In Proverbs 15, 7, the lips of the wise disperse knowledge. There's a very interactive component to wisdom and to Christianity. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21, I don't know why it wants to do it that way. It's not supposed to do it that way. They're all supposed to pop down down here. The wise in heart shall be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. The sweetness of the lips. You ever heard that phrase, you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar? Understanding is a wellspring of life to him that hath it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth the adding and addeth learning to his lips. Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. What are we trying to do in this video? What we're trying to do is, is put some of all that together and emulate it and come all together. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of the fool swallow up himself. So we have plenty of information in the Bible about the power that the mouth can bring, and especially in James chapter 3, where the tongue is set on the fire of hell. You can use your mouth to uplift people and bring them along into wholesomeness and righteousness, and you can, you can use your mouth to destroy people. We don't want to use our mouth to destroy people, but I think what's happening in Christianity is we accidentally use our mouth to destroy people. We think, like, I've got the truth right here, and we think that because I have the truth in having mode, see, they're not being the truth, but because I have the truth in having mode, then that means that I can cram it down everybody's throat as meanly as I possibly can. No, 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 no. We speak the truth in love. That's what we want to do. We want to find out how. How do we speak the truth in love? Let me be honest with you. Um, the reason I do videos like this is because I myself do not know how. I don't profess to know how. I don't profess to be an expert in any kind of thing. I am on a searching journey, and I simply invite you to come along with me. I do not consider myself to be very good at speaking the truth in love, and I want to be better at it. And as I aspire to be better, I simply invite you to come along and let's try to be better at this together. I have a few goals that I want to look at as we are looking at our objectives today. We want to be able to have more fruitful conversations. We want to connect with people more genuinely. We want to increase meaning in our life, and that would be your life and anybody else's life that's around you. We want to become more effective people. You want to be more agentic in the arena in which you find yourself, be able to do more things in that arena. And we want to be able to connect with the logos of John 1. When you learn how to dialogue and how to generate the logos, this what it does for me is it it takes that, that passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says, pray without ceasing. And it it brings it into a, an ever-present reality where the logos, the connected with the connectedness with the logos, is just kind of always there, and you you get you can refine your habits and your skill at tapping into the logos, so to say, and then you get to the point where it's kind of always there, and you're kind of always tapping into it, and you always have this ongoing uh, high bandwidth 
connection with the logos and that's what we want to have so we want to have good faith communications if i had to define good faith communications briefly it would be something like this engaging with another person in a genuinely exploratory mindset rather than vying to establish a superiority of currently held views what you think is true right now like i have the truth and i will cram it down i will bring you to understand what i think is the truth no each each participant genuinely holds curiosity for the reasons for the other's perspective. Now, there's a genuine expectation for new positions to come out, integrations of information that you hadn't considered before, and nuance to emerge from the exchange with your interlocutor. So the goal is ongoing capacity for further dialogue. In other words, when I'm talking with a person, my goal isn't necessarily to convince them of a particular thing. Okay, my goal is to have an ongoing dialogue. Um, I, so, for example, if I'm, you know, we do a lot of stuff about Calvinism on this channel. If I'm talking to a Calvinist, I'm not necessarily trying to persuade them on the spot that Calvinism is false. What I, my main goal is to have a productive conversation and then have it open-ended so that it's an iterable game, so that later on we can come back and have another conversation. And lo and behold. It could turn out that even though I may have pre-classified or prejudicially judged this person to be an NPC or something like that, it could be that they have some genuine insight that I didn't foresee. So I need to find a way to engage with these with anybody, uh, regardless of what I think about what they believe. I need to find a way to engage with them to try to tap into what they really think, and the good faith dialogue is one of the ways that I want to do that, okay? <clears throat> so that's that's what we want to do here. Um, let's go to this article. Let's look at this article, and basically I'm going to read it and comment on it. That's all we're going to do. It's real simple, and I'm going to, I'm going to be going kind of fast because I, want to, I don't want to have multiple sessions of this if I can avoid it, and I want to get through all of this so that it can be seen. So in a web browser, if you were to just type in the consilienceproject.org, okay, it would take you, and I think this is the first article that's available here. And so based on what we just said, we're going to go through this article, and what we're going to do, this, this has a sociopolitical uh, kind of mindset, but what we want to do as individuals or as Christians or as a family person, we want to bring this information over and see where it can help us have better conversations. And, and by the way, if you are married, okay, this is definitely a kind of skill that you want to be able to hone into for sure, okay? Good faith, good faith dialogue is what we want. So we're seeking to understand others and, and communicate honestly. And that's an, that's an essential democratic virtue and it can be maintained in the digital age. All right, now democratic is not talking about the Democrat party here. It's talking about the idea that people aren't tyrannized or oppressed by a centralized authority is the idea here, that everybody can voice their opinion is how this is used. So decades of culture war have degraded civic discourse. And think of, think of church discourse when you think of this too. Discourse between Christians, debates between, say, Leighton Flowers and James White. Think of this kind of thing putting many open societies into a tailspin or bad faith public communications. Politicians, journalists, and everyday people on all sides intentionally mislead with facts. Did you catch that? You can actually present facts in such a way to where maybe they're cherry-picked or framed in such a way to where it 
leave somebody with the impression that uh, of something wrong, even though all you did was share facts. There's a way to share facts which can actually mislead people. That'd be bad faith. So, and, and by the way, if you've ever heard a Calvinist versus non-Calvinist debate, you usually probably hear both sides cherry-picking information and framing it in a certain way to make their position look better and the other person's position look worse. And what's not happening? Those two people who are having that conversation aren't connecting as human beings, okay? They're firing a barrage of ideology at each other. We want to learn how to connect as human beings, okay? Let's set the beliefs aside for a second. Let's find out what, what makes you tick as an individual. All right. So um, politicians, they, okay, mislead with facts. They mischaracterize opposing views. They dehumanize those with whom they disagree. Social media has started to change our basic habits of communication by amplifying and incentivizing bad faith tactics, especially Twitter. Every day, whole populations are exposed to powerful forms of computational propaganda or other manipulative information, okay? Computational propaganda. There are AI bots out there that do nothing else that, that try to decide what keeps your attention. And as we've talked about on this channel, I think Nick brought this up on the channel, where you decide what is moral by what you give your attention to. And there's, there's a lot of truth in that. And so there's when you're on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or something like that, there there are powerful AI bots or AI algorithms specifically designed to figure out what it is that keeps your attention, okay, and sucking you into these things. They keep your attention, and then they expose you to a whole lot of information, and all this, it reshapes your salience landscape of all the information that's out there. And it can cause you to become unbalanced. They, they care for time on site. They don't care whether or not you wind up brainwashed. So we have to watch out for that and other manipulative information. So bad faith communication has been normalized. And if you follow like any of the debates about theology and things like that, it's so much bad faith is going on. I was just listening to, uh, well, this will come up later too. <laughs> this is bad news for any society that has values that values and now that word i want you to hone in on values okay because at some point in time you have to think other than what you think is true like doctrinally and so forth you want to you're going to have to like start rearranging how you function into sets of values okay we're talking about functionality we're not talking about propositions that you believe function your functionality is determined on values okay and that goes all the way to what kind of shoes you put on. What what are you aiming to do? Are you aiming for functionality? Do you, like one comedian said, if you put on flip-flops, you have decided that you are not going to be chased that day. <laughs> okay? You, and if, if you thought that you might be chased by somebody that day, you might wear something other than flip-flops. So maybe you can slip right out of them and run faster. Who knows? But that kind of thing. Every little decision. Every little decision um, is a values choice, and you need to understand that. So this is bad news for any society that values and seeks to rely upon the uncoerced cooperation of its members. Uncoerced, all right? History tells us that the end games of society-wide communication breakdowns are catastrophic. And you can pull that into the church. It gets to the point where uh, what they're going to say here is some of this stuff results in violence, if you think of it civically. But what's happening in the church 
it's not going to result in this. It, well, I've been to some Baptist uh, business meetings, and it can result in violence. But typically what's going to happen is you're going to wind up with a lot of what's called nuns, N-O-N-E-S. People just going to, they're, they're tired of this, and they don't want to put up with this nonsense, and they're just going to be out. We need to figure out how to stop that from happening. When open communication cannot be used to resolve conflict and coordinate behavior, societies are driven toward chaos, war, oppression, and authoritarianism. Okay, restore and and you notice that church denominations have kind of done the same thing. Especially look back to the Dark Ages when you had the church government authoritarianism kind of thing. That proposition centric. Remember, there's four kinds of knowing, and and the people who wrote this article know that. Okay, which is which one of the things that makes it worth reading, and. When you have proposition-centric type of Christianity, all it's going to do is result in conflict and infighting and witch hunts, okay? And then you, you, you're going to have to have Spanish Inquisitions and burn people at the stake and conduct wars against the Donatists and everybody else. You're going to have to kill, you know, over a thousand years, over 50 million people, okay? And so, um, it's somebody said this paragraph is naive. Well, the... I'm not sure if you're referring to this paragraph that's on screen, but actually later on in this article, it, it refers to naivety, okay? <clears throat> so restoring public trust and good faith communications is possible, but it requires both a cultural shift towards civic virtues and a redesign of the technologies and social processes that, civic structure, uh, that structure civic discourse. So that's some kind of ideas that maybe we can think about when it comes to Christians and theology and how we interoper interoperate with each other and how we interface with those outside of what's considered the church. People are being de-skilled in the art of good faith communication while refining skills and bad faith tactics. Despite the new normal of widespread bad faith communication, good faith communication is always already available to all parties. See box one below. We're going to cover these boxes in just a minute. But the choice to engage in good faith is especially difficult choice to make in today's culture, powerful and disincentives and barriers to make this choice have been put in place during many decades of escalating cultural conflict. Understanding why it has become so hard to engage in good faith communication is the first step towards shifting the cultural balance back in its favor. Communicating in good faith as a society requires that people take up certain skills and commit to shared values. So there's going to be an emphasis in this article of skills, values, and then uh, post-naivety, okay? And you, in order to want to engage anyway, you would have to be post-cynical post as well. <clears throat> so these skills and values are generally not practiced and endorsed in most contexts of civic discourse today. People are instead being de-skilled in the art of good faith communication while refining skills and bad faith tactics. So then it gives you these two boxes. And one thing that might be helpful with these two boxes, if you were to put them side by side, something like this, so that you can see them together side by side. But we're going to look at them one at a time, okay? And bad faith communication is a discourse that is intended to achieve behavioral outcomes, including consensus. I want it to highlight. <laughs> including consensus, agreement, likes, that kind of thing, irrespective of achieving true mutual understanding with the result of increasing faith in participants that the participants have in the value of communicating. And I want to stress that too. Remember, one of the goals that we have in communicating with people is to have the situation left open so that further communication can happen. So some signs, oh, we, we didn't do the good faith. Let's do the good ones first. Let's do the good ones, okay? 
I didn't realize that I had scrolled down. Good faith communication is discourse oriented toward mutual understanding and coordinated action with the result of increasing the faith that participants have in the value of communicating. So you might think coordinated action and good faith. You might think that a team collaborating, say a, a rowboat, uh, one of those rowing teams, I don't even know what they're called, one of those rowing teams that has to row in the Olympic sport, they are communicating to figure out how to work together better so that they can go faster and win the race. You would probably suspect that most of the communication there would be in good faith and that everybody's working together to try to achieve the same outcome, which is to to work together better and to row faster, something like that, okay? So, coordinated action with the result of increasing the faith that participants have in the value of communicating. So, you want to have increased faith that if I have a conversation with you, we're both going to walk away better for it. Some signs of good faith communication are expressions of humility and curiosity. I cannot stress these enough, okay? Um, epistemic humility, not thinking you know everything right off the bat, and then curiosity. When I talk to people who disagree with me, I try to be curious about where they are. Do I, I'm not, and I'm not saying that I always do this flawlessly, but when I'm talking with people like Calvinists, for example, what I encounter a lot of times is they're not curious at all. They already know what I believe, which they don't. And they don't, they, they're not, they don't ask me any questions, any good faith questions. They might ask me questions that are, that are leading questions like, do you believe in the sovereignty of God and those kinds of things. I mean, they're trying to, they're trying to bait you and switch you and things like that. Um, I have a phone call, which might be very important, which I have to. Okay, my kids are being transported safely. Sorry for that. <laughs> so expressions of humility and curiosity. One of the things that I look for when I'm talking to somebody is are they curious or have they already prejudicially decided where they think that I'm coming from, okay? And, I, and so curiosity is a huge deal. Openings for changes in position based on new information. Disagreements are welcomed. Group learning is valued. One of the things we try to do on, on Wednesday nights with our FSI group is, is learn as a group. Steel manning the position of others. In other words, be able to hear what the other person's position is and be able to repeat it back to them at least as strong as they did, maybe even stronger, and in a way to where they would agree to it. And they would say, yes, it sounds like you understand what I'm saying. Respect is maintained during the disagreement. The sufficient time is given to open discussion and other aspects of fair process. And use of, in other words, they're not, uh, you'll see sometimes on the news, they'll give you a real cl quick clip and then they'll get a real quick gotcha moment. Then they'll cut and go to commercial, something like that, rather than a long form communication. Now, if you are familiar with the concept of the IDW, the intellectual dark web, what's been happening on some of these, um, on some of these, discussions for example um rebel wisdom even uh what's the guy's name ben shapiro joe rogan some of these podcasters like this they will have people on that they disagree with and they can genuinely have a good faith dialogue between them and these kinds of conversations uh i think some between like jordan peterson and 
Oh, what's the atheist guy's name that everybody likes to bring up? I forget him. But some of these good faith dialogues, um, what has become popularized in this intellectual dark web, as Eric Weinstein you know, coined the term, is long-form conversations where everybody actually gets to say what they think and everybody is heard. I think that's a great thing to have. It's a great thing to maybe pull some things that we can model after as well. All right. Sufficient time is given to open discussion, other aspects of the fair process, long-form conversation, and use of careful clarifications and evidence, attempts at finding shared base realities and values. I was actually able to do this in a conversation with an atheist that I had not long ago to where we're able to boil things down as far as living life. Sam Harris, that's the one. So as far as living life, we can find uh, what it is that we both value and that we both share. And then emergence of new positions, integrations, and nuance. So here's the, here's the problem with this. And the, Okay, the emergence of new positions, integrations, and nuance, that is, um, you can find that, hey, there, there is a little bit of what you might call epistemic gray area. I know a lot of you, when it comes to moral things, you're like, there's no gray area when it comes to moral things. But, you know, I, I, I think there's, t- there's a place and time to disagree with that. And then especially epistemically, you, we have something called confidence margins, where instead of just being all for or all against something like doing splitting okay it's all black or all white it's all one way or it's all another we assign confidence margins where maybe i don't know for sure 100 percent what the deal is because maybe i don't have a, a geiger counter or maybe i'm not a meteorologist or whatever the argument is maybe i don't i have not read that person's works and so I have a maybe a 55% confidence margin that my position is correct, but I'm allowing 45 for possibly being wrong. Now, now I'm not attaching my identity, I'm not attaching my ego to the set of arguments. I'm just I'm letting it be out there and I'm letting it be separate from me. And that's very important. When you attach yourself to a set of arguments, which almost always happens as soon as, especially when people are start start to make a living off their arguments. Whenever those arguments are attacked, or discredited, or something like that, you feel personally attacked. Then you go into fight or flight mode, and then you can no longer engage in good faith. Okay, and we don't want that to happen. One way to stop that from happening is several different things you can do. But be aware of yourself. Be aware of polyvagal theory. Be aware of fight or flight mode. Understand some techniques on how to get out of that mode and return to open mode, right? And also, do not attach yourself to any set of propositional beliefs that you must affirm in order to be in order to be in grouped. Okay. <clears throat> so all signs. Here's what you got to understand: all signs of good faith communication can be faked, and you will see. You can see if you watch a like a theological debate between someone like James White and anybody, you will see all of these things kind of pandered to verbally, but then undermined procedurally. Okay, and so you need to increase your skill and the ability to identify these things. So bad faith communication is discourse. Bad faith. Now we're swapping over to bad faith. Is discourse that's intended to achieve behavioral outcomes, including consensus, agreement, and likes. Irrespective of achieving true mutual understanding with the result of decreasing faith and participants have in the value of communicating. Like, what's the point in having this conversation? I don't feel heard. I don't feel understood. 
The other person doesn't feel heard. They don't feel understood. And we're trying to just, you know, argue somebody down and we're Philea Nikea instead of Philea Sophia. We should be mutually engaged together to try to find truth together. That's what we want to do. So some signs of bad faith communication would be expressions of hubris and lack of curiosity in opposing views, refusing changes in position based on new information, disagreements unwelcomed consens- uh, disagreements are unwelcomed, and consensus is overstated. Everybody believes X, Y, Z. All the great theologians were Calvinists, that kind of thing. Straw manning the position of others. A straw man argument is a weakened version of the argument. I think, we, I think this gets into that. Disrespect including included as part of the disagreement. Well, you're an idiot. You know, that kind of thing. Um, insufficient time and other aspects of unfair pros- process. Sometimes there'll be a long-form discussion on a 60 Minutes interview, like that took two hours, and they only give you like 20, minute, 20 minutes worth of clips. And the, what the person really wanted to say doesn't get included in what is, in what is presented at the end. Somebody said, I'm guessing that Game B, Kevin, gets less likes. Um, It's fewer likes, not less. Okay. (laughs) I got jokes. Avoidance or omission of careful clarifications and evidence. You'll see that happen a lot. No attempts to find shared base realities and values. Emergence of stalemates, polarizations, and simplifications. And that's the the polarization is a, a real big thing in the simplification um, if you're in a discussion with a Calvinist, for example, you'll always find what you're believing to be oversimplified, and then they always feel that what they believe is oversimplified, and there's always like a like a further polarization as a result of these kinds of bad faith types of things. <laughs> so, um, we don't want that to happen. Notice all all faith all bad faith communication can be disguised and denied. Well. If the good faith ones can be faked in bad faith and all the bad ones can be disguised and denied, you know, the equivocation and stuff like that, then you need to bring some kind of skill and discernment and experience to the table when you're having a conversation where there's a serious disagreement, okay? Now, the situation with bad faith dialogue in society and I think in church has degraded to the point where it is widely believed that calls to good faith like this paper, are themselves acts of bad faith, let's believe that, undertaken only by those interested in controlling the discourse. Calls for good faith communication are understood at best as naive requests to calm the outrage and conflict that now runs rife in political discourse. And we've already seen that in the chat where somebody thought that this is a a naive issue, okay? To calm the outrage and conflict. So it's not just that we want to calm the outrage and conflict, we want to genuinely connect with people and find out what it is that really makes them tick. We have a genuine connection. Both ends of political spectrum, the far left and the far right, express this view. Both sides believe that the other side simply can't be trusted and therefore cannot be engaged in good faith. To do so would be to fall into a trap serving only to validate the dangerous views of groups known to be acting in bad faith. You think, oh, you're, you're validating this other group by trying to engage with them in good faith. So we, this is addressed. This stance of assuming the undesirability and sometimes impossibility of good faith communication sets off a spiral of mutual dismissal, distrust, and villainization. 
The only outcome of this dynamic is escalating cultural conflict, and you would see that within the church as well, eventual physical violence, you could see that in Baptist business meetings, <laughs> and a growing awareness of this dynamic has political scientists and journalists worrying about increasing violent civil conflict within the United States. Others see, others see the situation as leading to some for, form of authoritarian control over public communication to secure social coordination by force. So imagine if this, in, in society, if bad faith communication continues and continues in this whole fake news idea, if that continues and continues and gets worse and worse and worse, pretty soon the only way to address that is going to be to have a, like a 1984 situation. Like if you watch the news in China or North Korea, you know it's not the news, okay? You're getting a certain you're you're getting a certain line of propaganda which you know is not true, all right? And we don't want that to happen here in the United States. Now in the church arena, people are more free to to leave assemblies or to join assemblies or to form their own assemblies. And what's happening over this is people are conducting censorship in on their in their own life by just leaving the church because it's all bad faith communications. Why would I be involved in that? So th that's where the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S comes from, the nuns. They're just out. I'm, I'm gone. I see ya. So they are, they are censoring our capacity to reach anybody with what we think is true. Okay? Now there should be no illusion. To, illusion. Today's culture war cannot be won by any side. All right, it's not going to be a winning thing. All sides agree that in the absence of good faith communication, the last resort is some form of violence. Despite this knowledge, many still assert that it is actually unethical to engage the other side in good faith. The result is that people are earnestly doing something they believe to be right, refusing to engage in good faith with those they disagree with, which is nevertheless leading toward a result they do not actually want. So we, what does that mean? We have to figure out how to increase our skill at actually connecting with more people, including those that don't agree with us. And that means increasing your skill at connecting with people in good faith. Otherwise, we're going to get situations that we don't want. And we already have largely a situation we don't want. I get people emailing me almost every day asking me if there's a good church in their area that I can recommend. And almost always I have to say, no, I don't think there is, or I don't know of one. Okay. And that's a situation we don't want. We don't want a situation. I got some friends in Mississippi right now who had to leave a church that was overrun by a by a Calvinist pastor, and now that they don't really have anywhere in their area that they can go, they actually recommended a church to me that's in my area. Okay, so this is this is a very serious situation. That's not a situation we want. It'd be better if we had better churches and more options to go to. But we've degraded so much that there's often nothing worth spending, you know, wasting your time on. Um, meanwhile, some parties actively seek to benefit from this dynamic, such as social media companies that leverage conflict for attention capture. Because remember, they just want time on site. The culture war, like most wars, is a source of profit and therefore perpetuated despite it's therefore perpetuated despite the dangers. So they want the culture war to go on. There's some people that want racism to be a problem so that they can make money off of it. There's some people that want conflict in any category or domain domain that you can think of because the conflict means you can you can profit off of it given well-documented advances in the field of information warfare there should be no illusion today's culture war cannot be won by any side mutually assured destruction is now the name of the war game 
The saturation of bad faith communication through culture is steadily increasing like a, uh, like a kind of dangerous background radiation emitted from scientifically engineered mimetic weaponry. Now, what on earth is scientifically engineered mimetic weaponry? Now, we've talked about mimetics on this channel before. In Christian, um, mimetics, you have your set of ideas. A meme is a word coined by Christopher Dawkins, I think, in 1976, where he took the word gene and instead of mimic and gene, memetic is where you take an idea. An idea tends to replicate and spread like a gene tends to spread itself and replicate. So if you were to look at the Christian meme complex, it would look something like this. And if you were to look at the... So the center of the Christian meme complex would be something like the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ on the authority of Scripture. If you were to look at the Calvinist meme complex it is actually um what do you call it parasitic to christianity in other words it's a religion within a religion it's a separate religion in just as much as crt and woke stuff is but since it's embedded in christianity it's not so obvious that it's another religion with its own theory of sin its own theory of redemption all this other stuff but it uses all the same terminology that christianity does and it's got its own it's got its own central meme complex and the central meme of of calvinism as it is formed is total depravity the central meme as it is presented is the sovereignty of god and those two are very different things the narrative and the actuality of how it's structured are two very different things and so what you will have between christians and calvinists is this narrative is this narrative warfare with all these ideas being bandied about so what we're talking about here something like that when we have the saturation of bad faith communication uh, is kind of like a dangerous background radiation emitted from scientifically engineered mimetic weaponry. And another way you could say that would be uh, like uh, narrative warfare, okay? And they find out the ideas that you believe in and they use ideas to perpetuate other ideas. And uh, memes have endurance memes to keep you staying the course. They have propagation memes to spread it to spread the central centrality of the meme complex to other people, and they have protection memes designed to keep to defend the meme complex and to keep people that are in the meme complex from coming to the cognitive level of awareness whereby they doubt the central meme and the meme complex. And all these things are are weaponized within meme complexes and how they how they move and travel around. And it's something I very much encourage every Christian to understand. By the way. Public political discourse is quickly becoming toxic war, a toxic war zone, leaching externalities into families, friendships, and identity structures, and I would say the same thing in the realm of theology. When institutions that depend on public trust indulge, uh, indulge bad faith communications repeatedly, the legitimacy of these institutions declines. And you can think this exact same way as what's going on with churches today. While insincere and manipulative communications have always been part of human societies, our modern communications environment surpass, uh, surpasses most recent historical periods in terms of the scale of its dysfunction. And, and it seems like this is all the way down into families and how families talk to each other, especially husbands and wives, very much. So thanks for the super chat, Forging Beyond Belief. He says... What would you say is the end goal of bad faith engagement 
versus good faith endeavors. I think this is the best thing I can give you, I think, is a metaphor where the best metaphor for bad faith arguments is is the zombie trope where you have something to which people can out they people can outsource their mind to an ideology and your only goal is to is to bolster that ideology and persuade as many people to the ideology as possible it's just like zombies turning other people into zombies that's there's there's no genuine you can't connect with a zombie you can't interface with a zombie okay and so there's there's no capacity there to have a genuine connection and if you don't have connection you don't have meaning all right so you have to have connection to have meaning and so it's um it, bad faith engagement like you see people like James White doing for Calvinism bad faith engagement is essentially a war against meaning it's a war against meaning and a war to outsource the mind to a set of propositions that somebody else has decided for you and when we all become no pun intended robots for that thing and i would say that not just because calvinism and robots kind of thing but for any ideology that would be the case <clears throat> that's my that's my quick take on that um comparisons may only be drawn with epics characterized by failed states, civilization collapse, total war, and you could think what has happened in the history of so-called Christianity, okay? You think of the Inquisitions, you can think of burning people at the stake, you can think of the Reformation and what a horrible fur show that was. Widespread inability to reach mutual understanding between members of the same society leads inevitably to social breakdown. When institutions that depend on public trust indulge in bad faith communications repeatedly, the legitimacy of these institutions declines. Unreliable communication compounds already complex social problems competing for citizens' limited attention, uh, including ecological, economic health, and education crisis. So there's some common strategies of bad faith communication. What are they? Well, what you could do is, and you'll, you'll recognize some of these as er logical errors or logical fallacies, okay? You could mislead with facts. What is it to mislead with facts? That is, presenting an argument containing factual information which is used intentionally to lead others to draw a conclusion that is not entirely accurate, okay? You can quote Bible verses to convince somebody some, something that isn't true is true, okay? You can present information, you can present evidence and then interpret it in such a way that it causes people to think things aren't true. Like, that, the evidence is what it is, right? So you can mislead with facts. You can cherry-pick them. You can frame them. Uh, a white hat bias. And in the cybersecurity world, we have white hat hackers, which are good guys that are hacking on purpose um, with the company knowing about it and paying them to do so so that you can find vulnerabilities in the network. But a white hat bias would be presuming one's own moral and intellectual correctness then using that assumption as righteous justification for communications that are intentionally deceptive and manipulative. In other words, if I think I'm right and my position is right, then it's like the ends justify the means. Then it's okay to deceive people into agreeing with what I think is right and manipulate them into that. Straw man arguments, presenting the arguments of their opponents in their weakest forms and after dismissing those claiming to have discredited the position as a whole. 
Now, real straw man arguments are much stronger than this. A real straw man argument is when you throw something out there as representative of the other side, and then they adopt that as their argument. Now, we did videos on here recently, Calvinism, it's not about free will. Calvinism, it's not about fairness. There's a lot of non-Calvinists out there arguing against Calvinism on the basis of free will and on the basis of fairness. Those are bad arguments. Those are straw man arguments thrown out by Calvinists. They are the ones that need the will shut down. That's their thing. They are the ones that bring fairness into the issue. That's their thing. The only issue we are concerned with is scriptural authority. Okay? So... <laughs> So that kind of thing. And, and so when, when non-Calvinists jump, when they start arguing and f like using free will as an argument against Calvinism, they have been set up by Calvinists to do that, and they should not do that. Now, Manny submitted another super chat and wants to talk about 1 Corinthians 10.33. So let me look at it real quick. Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Okay, if I could show you that passage right there. Yeah, so that they may be saved. And then the question would be, you know, saved from what? There is in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. And this, this thing, this saved could be applied to any situation. Saved from what? Okay, in First Timothy 4, 16, it says, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both... Save thyself. I did not know that this was cut off. There we go. Thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. There we go. Now, is he, Timothy can't save himself and he can't save anybody who's hearing him. What's that about? That's about the, the other things that are warned about in that chapter. Okay. So when it comes to being saved from a particular thing, the Bible is fractal. So when you see the word saved, most people most often think of saving the soul from hell or, you know, saving the soul to heaven, to God, in the afterlife, that kind of thing. But there are other things going on. Maybe somebody needs to be saved from a bad decision or a bad set of decisions or from a ideology that causes them to make decisions. That happens to be my situation. I was following an ideological type of Christianity uh, in my years past, and it led me to make bad decisions. And then it, it just so happened that some people who uh, it caused, it profited me that they helped me to make better decisions and save me from making worse decisions. So I think it's fractal, and that desire to save somebody could be applied at any level, regardless of how high or low. And, and this pleasing all men's not seeking my own profit but the profit of many that they may be saved and that is that is agopic love where you self-sacrificially give of yourself for the sake of the betterment of somebody else okay which is what should be done some more of these bad arguments an ad hominem dismissal that is the disparaging the character of a person or others and in so doing acting as if also invalidated their arguments like you could say well I know he's arguing for this, but he went to an unaccredited college, or he doesn't have a degree, or um, we saw him drinking wine at the restaurant, you know, like a moral thing. <laughs> but none of those things 
address the argument that he's making. So let's, let's look at the argument, not the person. Don't attack the person. I, I, I act a lot in some of these theological debates and, and, and on, on Facebook and also some of these atheist versus Christian ones. And, and all the time, I just got, there was a thread where I was dealing with some atheists today and I got attacked. I got attacked personally, like they presuming I don't understand certain things, which is not the case. And you don't know because da da da, because you, which was not the case. Uh, moving the goalposts, establish an agreed standard criteria or data for accepting another's views. But once this is provided or met, the prior agreement is not mentioned and a new standard is set. The reverse case also applies when one cannot meet the agreed standards. These standards are forgotten and new ones are established. This happens a lot of times when I'm talking to Calvinists about monergism and synergism. I will ask them, okay, please give me the definition of monergism. And then after they give me the definition and we agree on it, then I show them that by their definition, they are synergists. By their own definition. And then they want to back up and change and reset the definition to be something else. No, 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 no. We got, no, you, you agreed on the definition that's been there since 1891, since it was invented. And by that definition, you are a synergist. No, no bones about it. And then they want to go back and change things. Okay. So that, and you'll find equivocation all the time. Like they equivocate on words like calling, um, a lot of other things and probably non-Calvinists do it too. Sanctimony, acting as if oneself now, I'm going to bring up this slideshow over here. Sanctimony. Acting as if oneself and or your group is unquestionably morally superior and more intelligent than specific disagreeable individuals or groups and thereby devaluing the members and uh, delegitimating, de- delegitimating hmm, all the views of that group. Okay. Now, it might be when it comes to sanctimony, it might be helpful to read the book by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, the righteous mind, and maybe why good people are divided by politics and religion. Very good book, and it could be called maybe he 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 lays out his theory on moral foundations theory, and you find out that people operate basically on certain moral foundations: care, harm, liberty, oppression, fairness, cheating, loyalty, betrayal, authority, and subversion. Going to talk about that one in a second and sanctity degradation, okay? And this taps into the sanctity degradation one. So I'm reading this article over here. These people who are writing this article are familiar with this book, and I highly recommend that you become familiar with it as well. And I'm revamping the website right now, and one of the pages that I'm going to have on there is a list of books and works that I think Christians should be familiar with, all right, in order to uh, navigate life (laughs) and the world and other people and those kinds of things. Appeals to authority is the very next one. Deeming that one's own authority, well, Dr. John Piper has so da-da-da-da. Deeming that one's own authority or that of the favorite expert or that of an associate institution definitely, associated institution definitely establishes positions currently being contested. Therefore, no further communication or explanation is needed and the arguments of the disagreeable parties can be dismissed. And you would say, well, so-and-so is a scientist and they have 32,000 degrees and they believe this. Well, what's the argument they're making? See, the fact that they are such a credentialed authority or the fact that they were revered 400 years ago or they started a church in a place that is really popular whatever none of that none of that has anything to do with 
the argument that they're making. Dehumanizing language. This is what I was going to talk about earlier. Deploying language that characterizes groups as irredeemably unreasonable and not worthy of consideration and thereby suggesting such groups should not be engaged in good faith. Um, when the waitster and I did a video recently, we, we prepared, we were going to talk about a series of sermons by Jeff Durbin and, Durbin and James White. And in those sermons, you heard these, Jeff Durbin was referring to non-Calvinists. He's talking about grace and he was referring to non-Calvinists as those devils. Those, there's these professing Christians and those devils, da, 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 da. Well, that's, that's a real great way to, uh, you know. Extend Christian love to your fellow brethren, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> That's dehumanizing language. Undue social pressure. Making arguments in ways that signal disagreement will result in removal or disparagement from the in-group as demands for behavioral and conformity override the power of reasoning and evidence. This includes canceling, deplatforming, unfollowing, blocking, boycotting, trolling. In Christian circles, this is, this is the function of the orthodoxy heresy spectrum. That spectrum exists solely to put undue social pressure on people so that they defect from the way it seems to them toward the way it should seem to the in-group that they want to be a part of. Oh, if you believe if you don't believe this, you're some kind of heretic. You you should be in the out-group. You are you're a, this is heresy. And so the only reason the, the heresy orthodoxy spectrum exists is to put this bad faith pressure on people to force them to conform without actually dealing with the legitimacy or the validity of the ideas. Pejorative representations. Employing openly insulting and dismissive language when describing the person's ideas or practices of disagreeable groups, thereby justifying the discounting of their arguments without earnest consideration. These devils, for example. Okay, That could also be, huh, you could, you know, these these backwoods, Rednecks, or you know, you say something like that to cause a pejorative representations. These uh, neo Mormons, you know, these Pelagians, these um, free willers, or something like that. You see people use this kind of stuff all the time. Faking empathy and respect that is, pretending to feel empathy and respect for, disagree, uh, for disagreeable others in a manner that undermines their actual experiences and beliefs. Straw man empathy, um, equivocations, and false logic, engaging. In engaging involved and detailed forms of argument that are nevertheless fallacious and misleading due to subtle and not so subtle logical mistakes such as strategically conflating and misusing terms. Equivocation. All right, Calvinists would do this with the term uh, sovereignty, for example. They will, with the word calling and with the word salvation, and with the word, okay, faith and works is a big one where they use equivocation and false logic. Manipulative framing. Using metaphors and emotional frames to lead preemptively to conclusions that are not fully suggested by the details of the argument. Like when a Calvinist uses the prison analogy, for example. Villainization. Creating the image of an anti-hero who epitomizes the worst of the disagreeable group in contrast with the best qualities of one's own, then characterizing all members of the other group as if they were identical to that image. It'd be like saying all Calvinists are like James White, okay? And they aren't. You have some people that are like like J.D. Martin, which is a much more palatable version of a Calvinist. And it would be unwise and untrue to say that they were all exactly the same. I have... A
sometimes the allergies call. Oversimplification. Intentionally focusing on a few or the wrong variables when drawing conclusions about complex systems while also dismissing as irrelevant or misleading the views of those seeking to include more variables for consideration. So let's look at all the variables here. Let's look at all the verses, not just these two or three. And I know sometimes we're just uh, confined by time, which is often the case here. Okay, that I can't, I can't include everything from the Bible every time I have a video. So every time I do a video, people complain about what I'm leaving out. Okay. A complexity smokescreen, bringing an overwhelming amount of complex information to an argument and in so doing strategically downplaying a smaller or less complex set of variables that are actually more meaningful to the topic under discussion. Now, what I've seen this happen a lot is James White will be on his heels in a debate about something over something over passages that are very clearly against Calvinism. And then he will resort to all kinds of things like uh, ancient songs, which are supposed to give the real meaning of the intent here. And then he'll go into the Greek, which he knows most people aren't fluent in biblical Greek. So he's going to go there simply for the sake of overcomplexifying and obfuscating the simplicity of what the text is trying to say by trying to allude to some kind. It's just, it's just a further layer in which post hoc rationalization can be conducted. And so he goes to that as a complexity smokescreen. So you'll see that a lot happen as well. In the wake of digital communication technologies, especially social media, manipulative information has become vastly more powerful. As demonstrated elsewhere, social media enables undue influence. What this means is that group membership established on social media can result in states akin to brainwashing. In other words, you can, if you spend enough time on social media, you can become brainwashed, in which... Allegiance to the norms of the group and fear of ostracism cause extreme behaviors both online and offline. For example, if I, if I go into a Facebook group where there have been Calvinists and non-Calvinists dialoguing back and forth for a good number of years, there's a certain characteristic, especially if they have been encountering people who hold some of my views and and some provisionists, and they understand some of the different nuances between the various positions. But if you leave there and go to a group that is just Calvinists, it is like those Calvinists and the ones in the other group, it's like they're completely different people. And the, the in-group normalization of the, other, of the other group, and they're all naive and unaware, they're unaware of the nuanced positions of the, think, of the people they think they're against, it's completely different things. A post-truth post culture is a culture of bad faith. And that's kind of where we are with Christians right now. Uh, I know everyone says they have truth, but there's nothing transforming anybody to actually operate in good faith. And that's what, that's what would be a testament of truth as far as I'm concerned. A key feature of escalating extremism is a belief that group membership requires bad faith engagements without groups. Now, what does that mean? I used to be an independent Baptist. And it was very rivalrous. You were, it was expected that you would deal with external people in a rather harsh manner and use whatever arguments necessary to make your point, even in bad faith. It was kind of encouraged, all right? I'm not saying all independent Baptists are that way, and I'm not saying that I was that way when I was there, but I've been with groups that were like that. And uh, there was a time in my 20s when I engaged in like very bad faith 
uh, <laughs> in-group and out-group activities. And I'm quite ashamed of it. In these contexts, bad faith behavior is often justified to maintain in-group membership and consensus. Um, and, and witch hunts come up. The Salem witch hunts and stuff like that come up because of this thing. If you look at Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, I think chapter 6 or so is about witch hunts. And any proposition-centric set of belief system, whether it's Christianity or not, is going to result in backstabbing, ostracizing, and witch hunts. The normalization of bad faith communications. See how fast the dictionary works on these things? <laughs> Just double click. Uh, the normalization of bad faith communication contributes to the creation of extreme in-group pressures, which can rupture identities and exacerbate mental health crisis. I've seen this happen in people's lives, where the the ideo- the ideology isolates people from reality, and the more you're isolated from reality and not in touch with it, the less meaning you have in life, the less connectedness, the less meaning, and then the more uh, mental health problems you have as a result. personal instabilities usually lead to doubling down on the need for group membership, increasing rationalizations and amplifications of bad faith practices. Okay. So it actually amplifies the bad faith practices when, when in group incentives get involved. Think of the Ash conformity experiments. Go watch those when you get a chance. Okay. Digital media companies, business models result in a proliferation of increasingly niche groups, memberships, niche group memberships. They also incentivize, Public displays of conflict and bad faith communication. So-and-so destroyed so-and-so. Everyone clicks on that. That's clickbait. That's what everyone wants to see. In order to capture the attention and optimize engagement. Advertisements and propaganda. Clickbait. Advertisements and propaganda dominate the social media space, driving up the total amount of bad faith communication to which people are exposed. In a very literal sense, heavy users of social media are being behaviorally entrained to engage disproportionately in bad faith communication. Well, what does entrained mean? If I look up entrained, it is of a current or fluid to incorporate and sweep along in its flow. Okay? So imagine uh, when you, if you have a bunch of debris in your kitchen sink and then the water is flowing and it's kind of dragging all the stuff along with the flow of it. Okay? Something like that. Heavy users of social media are being behaviorally entrained to engage disproportionately in bad faith communication. So they're being sucked along with the flow and the tendency for this kind of thing. Politicians, public officials, and influencers of all kinds seek to exploit this kind of environment of distrust and capitalize on the decline of social value of good faith interactions. The epistemic commons, and that is epistemic, how we make how we know what's true, and the commons is the type of information we all have to share, the arena that we all have to share. The epistemic commons is repeatedly degraded to the point of exhaustion. In other words, if you, if you go watch the news, the information that's put out to the commons that everybody has access to, there's so much framing, there's so much bad faith communication, there's so much cherry picking, there's so much... Um, incorrect information, like Murray Gelman amnesia effect. There's so much of that that by the time you deconstruct a paragraph of what's been said, there's no signal left there anymore, except for the fact that you know these people are biased and they're trying to put something over on you. And after you go through 10 of those, it's pretty exhausting looking for signal somewhere. Okay, So we want to get to a place where, so this practically post-truth culture if you're a Christian, is a culture of bad faith. If you're a Christian and you are focused on statement of faith or creedal Christianity, 
you are a post-truth Christian. In other words, you are going to manipulate the data to match your creed rather than be involved in a genuine search for truth. And that's, that's the nature of the game. There's no way to not be that if you, are, if you subscribe to a creed or a statement of faith or something like that, especially militantly. This must stop. Is there to be any op- future for open society? Somebody says, where does the evangelist fit in this? The, this? This is absolutely crucial to evangelism. You want to be able to have a good faith dialogue with anybody, with anybody, whether or not they are Christian or whether they're unchristian. Um, what, <laughs> you want to be able to connect with people and have a good faith dialogue with them. And then the Christianity should come out in the process of their of your interaction with them. They should be able to see Christ in you through the interaction with them. This this is crucial for any kind of effective evangelism. <clears throat> Although there are many significant barriers to acting in good faith, they are surmountable given su- su- sufficient interest and willingness to seek cooperation and mutual understanding. If the desired outcome is sustainable, uncoerced social cooperation, which is what democracies strive to achieve, then willingness and interest must be found. Okay, you got to be willing. Unso- unso- uncoerced social cooperation. What's an example of this? Uncoerced social cooperation. Nobody made me buy this, but everyone has one, and it's kind of like Metcalf's Law. The more people that have them, the more beneficial it is to have one. That kind of thing is an example of that. If the government came out and said, everybody must go buy a smartphone, people would rebel. (laughs) They'd reject that. The remedy for ongoing bad faith communication is not more bad faith communication, which is what we see. People are like, well, I think XYZ is true. Then they go double down on their bad faith communication, pounding the desk of what they think the true thing is, all right? And they don't want that to happen. <clears throat> Good faith communication is both a complex skill and a value commitment. Notice that. It is a value commitment. What do you value? Do you value ostracizing people and alienating people and shaming people? Or do you value connecting with people and having more meaning? All right, that's what you want to do. It is a value commitment that shapes personal identity. In other words, doing it. Doing what? Good faith communication. Doing that is sufficiently difficult that getting good at it will change the kind of person that you are. Did you hear me? Transformation. Pressing toward the mark. That's one of the things you need to strive to be when you're trying to be like Jesus Christ. You want to strive to be a good faith communicator. And so, listen closely again. Doing good faith communication is sufficiently difficult that getting good at it will change the kind of person that you are. What I want to do is to get good at it. I don't profess to be good at it, but I'm on the journey to try to get there. That's, I'm inviting you to come along with me to try to get better at this with me. But good faith engagement is often misconceived as a simple emotional stance leading to an overzealous search for agreement. So the, the idea isn't to agree and to be overzealous about finding a place of agreement. That's not the point, okay? In part, this is because naive good faith interactions can be based on an innocent orientation toward peacemaking and the avoidance of conflict. That is not skilled good faith communication. We don't want to have naive good faith communication. This can be seen in the this can be seen in the good faith engagement of a child who does not know that some people are untrustworthy. 
unskillfully, notice that, unskillfully engaging in good faith can be a danger when others are acting in bad faith, okay? What that means is that whatever your skill of good faith communication is, that fight might not be your fight or that engagement. I don't want to call it a fight because we're trying to be not rivalrous, right? Non-rivalrous. So engaging in trying to engage in good faith communication with somebody might not be very good if you know they're going to be in bad faith and your skill level is not up to the task of doing it, okay? This is one of the reasons, like, um, I, I don't perceive myself to have the skill level to to have a debate with somebody who is in such bad faith communication as someone like James White, all right? It's not that I don't think his position is wrong or mine is true. That's easy to demonstrate, but I don't think I have the skill level in good faith communications to engage somebody who is that skilled in bad faith communications, okay? So why would I do that? Um, cast not your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. <clears throat> By the way, I, I do have an open acceptance anytime he wants to go. In some political discussions today, it's common to hear that you can't engage in good faith with Nazis. Now, a generous interpretation of this statement is that there are truly unreasonable people who must not be trusted because they have proven themselves to be dangerous and unethical. But this is not an argument against good faith communication in general. And I would say this is like I've had experience with people who have uh, mental illness issues. And sometimes you just can't reason with them. It's just not going to happen. All right. And I'm not trying to disparage people with mental illness issues. Actually, in a few months, I'm planning on coming out with some videos about this topic and what Christians can do, could and should do about this issue. But some, just acknowledging that sometimes for whatever reason, maybe it's physiological, you just can't engage with some people um, productively. <clears throat> it's an argument against engaging in naive forms of good faith communication, which would play into the hands of those actively seeking to cause harm to others. Likewise, for those who have been lied to historically and treated with disrespect by specific groups, Naively engaging with those same groups again in good faith would be foolish. So you would have no reason to do that once they've proved that they could not operate in good faith. <clears throat> Still, it remains true that under the conditions of contemporary society, the end game of unrelenting and escalating bad faith communications in which everyone loses is one in which everyone loses. The remedy for ongoing bad faith communication is not more bad faith communication. The risk of mutually assured destruction in the information war game cannot be contained. The solution, therefore, appears to be necessarily drastic and, and unavoidably painful. Without a change in the current trends, authorities are increasingly likely to use force to secure ongoing coordination. This includes increasingly overt censorship and the ideologically motivated disenfranchisement of dissidents. In other words, it's going to be like 1984. If we can't get our act together and start communicating effectively in good faith communication... Um, our government is going to crack down and they are going to decide what is acceptable communication and they're going to tell you what you can and can't say. It's going to be like the aftermath of the, Bol of the Bolshevik Revolution after 1917 when anybody who said anything against anyone got put in the gulags. There was an example in, in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, gulag archipelago. There was a story of a guy in there who he was like an air conditioner or a refrigerator repairman and he was kind of touched, and he just enjoyed writing his name on everything 
that that he could get his hands on. So he wrote his name all over the newspaper, and the newspaper happened to have a picture of Stalin on it. And he wrote his name all the way across Stalin's picture over and over and over again because he wrote on all paper that way. Well, because he defaced a picture of Stalin, he got put in the gulags. <laughs> if that really happened, that kind of thing really happened with humans, all right? And it's And that's not even one of the most horrible stories. And if we don't get our act together and our ability to talk to each other, it's that can happen anywhere, all right? Avoiding social catastrophe will require the deployment of high... And what I'm trying to say about this, this article is geared toward it happening socially out in what you might call the secular environment. I don't think there is a secular environment. There's just the environment, okay? But from their perspective, they're looking at this, my contention is that Christians should be leading the way on how to do this. And we are failing miserably. We are failing miserably. We, we are the tip of the spear for bad faith communication, which is the exact opposite of what it should be. We should be demonstrating to the rest of the world how to have good faith dialogue with each other. That's what we should be doing. Avoiding social catastrophe will require the deployment of highly skilled, non-naive, good faith communication. The question is, what role are you going to play in that? What role are you going to play in becoming? I need you. Listen to me. Stop what you're doing. I need you to become highly skilled in good faith communication and non-naive in good faith communication and be willing to do it. You need to be able to do that. The, the future of the, the impact of Christ on the world de depends on being able to work through you and your ability to do that. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Commit yourself to be this. This form of communication that seeks to increase for all parties their faith and the value of ongoing communication. Communicating in this way involves recognizing conflict and disagreement as real and important. You don't just dismiss them. The disagreement's real. It's important. It needs to be dealt with. Unlike less skilled forms of good faith communication in which conflict is judged to be bad and is just diffused with no kind of resolution and no kind of uh, ongoing work to further the communication. The goal is to avoid the downward, downward spiral of mutually reinforcing escalations of bad faith. Delicately transforming a situation of escalating bad faith requires the slow establishment of previously unrecognized shared interests. Here's the how part. Okay? You disagree with somebody? What Establish with that person what are your shared interests. You're talking to a Calvinist? What interests do you share? Let's discover what those are. All right? And <clears throat> if they can operate in good faith. Often on issues as basic as self-preservation. Like, well, we want to stay alive. Right? The goal in most cases is not agreement. That would be naive. The goal is simply to do what? To preserve the possibility of communication itself. We started off with the beginning of that. The possibility of communication itself. You have a dialogue. I'm not trying to get the person to agree with me necessarily. I'm trying to get the person to a place where we can keep talking. And that later on we can have another conversation. That kind of thing. More specifically, the goal is to act in ways that generate faith in the value of ongoing future communication. Like if we keep talking, it's going to be worthwhile and we're both going to learn something from it. That kind of thing. This faith in a dynamic of communication that makes it possible to change positions, learn, 
improve mutual understanding about essential shared realities, okay? And maybe some people are going to have to become, you know, exercise metanoia, become repent and become, uh, get some metacognition going on, metaparadigmatic thinking, get outside your paradigm. The risk of engaging in good faith can be mitigated. <laughs> you can strongly disagree with someone in good faith, but this can only happen if you are in the right context while also being skillful and committed enough to do so. So we're looking for skill in this and commitment to do this. And that's what I'm asking of you to do this. The only way to handle highly charged disagreements in good faith is to have social processes robust enough to hold them. Social media is demonstrably not adequate to this task, but neither are the largely large neither are the legacy institutions such as the judiciary, legislature, election processes built by the architects of the modern nation state. And I would say that neither are the legacy institutions, whatever church you go to. The way church has been done, there's this little video by Michael Heiser that uh, Roberta shared with some of us, and he talked about the the changing nature of the church as as the landscape changes around, essentially, how the church is going to look and it's not going to look like what it's looked like in the past. Well, we need to anticipate that and and help bring Christians into it, okay? And the institutions that we've been using to bring church along, those are not, those are wholly insufficient and inadequate to continue, to continue at all. They are not doing what Christians should be doing. They're not producing any kind of fruit in Christianity that should be getting produced. So it's up to us. It's up to you and me to like really take this Ephesians 4.16 edification model by the horns and fully commit ourselves to it and become more skillful at the thing. Okay. Digital communication technologies make it possible for new forms of democracy as well as new civic communications infrastructures supportive of good faith exchange essential to open societies, but these possibilities remain unactualized, okay? So there's some things that still need to come up. <clears throat> this is a faith in the, di- this, this is faith in the dynamic of communication that makes it possible to change positions, learn, improve mutual understanding about essential shared realities. And that's in the paragraph that we just read. So designing technologies that enable good faith communication is not enough. It also requires as a culture, now think about Christian culture. What's the culture in our church? Is the church... Uh, is our culture in our church the one where we are calling people who disagree with us devils and we're always wanting to debate them and destroy them? What's the culture there? Is it a culture of, of creeds and statements of faith where we, we have truth in having mode? We have modal confusion. We need to get into being mode, not in having mode when it comes to our concept of truth. <clears throat> so it also also required is a culture that emphasizes its value as a shared social good. So if you are a Christian, the culture in your Christian assembly should emphasize the value of good faith communications as a shared social good. Once underway, good faith communication creates a self-reinforcing dynamic mutual of, of mutual understanding even during disagreements that keeps open possibilities for learning and coordinated action. This is the reverse of the downward spiral of mutual, spiral of mutual distrust created by bad faith communication. Quick returns of social benefit result from investments in good faith communication across disagreements, which is what we need to do. All right. Finally, even though most of most contexts do not currently support it, there is some personal responsibility that can be taken. Despite not personal responsibility, 
that's where that's where you come in to take personal responsibility for becoming more skilled in good faith communication and engaging in it, okay? Despite the escalating culture war, individuals can cultivate the skills of good faith communication and demonstrate its value as a social good. Um, just like people saw smartphones and like, hey, that looks pretty cool. I want to go get one. They should see good faith communication like some of these long form communications by the intellectual dark web and say, oh, that looks pretty good. I want to do that too. Or I want to support that too. That kind of thing. You can practice disagreeing in ways that maintain relational integrity and respect. Reflect on values. Notice bad faith tactics. In other words, you get the skill to notice the bad faith tactics. Hold politicians, officials, journalists, your friends, yourself, and your preacher to higher standards of communication. And I would say, and me too, there's been people, um, people in the FSI group are very gracious in reaching out to me and talking to me when they're like, hey, you got a YouTube channel, you're running your mouth all the time, and I think maybe you could do this better, all right? And I need that. And, and we need each other to help each other see what our blind spots are so that we can practice good faith communication in a better way. So to get started, you can consider the common strategies of bad faith communication in box two. Now we showed those boxes earlier and I put them side by side on our little slideshow here. Box two would be the one on the right, the bad faith communication ones, I think. Okay. You could, um, Consider the common strategies of bad faith communication in box two and practice the opposing strategies for good faith. <clears throat> Look in box one. Try to try to act, actually genuinely do those things. But understand that highly skilled, non-naive good faith communication cannot be made routine. Somebody asked me recently for just like a, a formulaic list of arguments and answers that people can memorize against Calvinism. Like, no, 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 no. That is not what you want. Even if somebody was going to take the time to produce that, which there is a book at Examining Calvinism that does that, if you want that kind of thing. And I'm not necessarily against that existing, right? That, that guy's a, a good guy and I like him. But um, that's not what you want. Um, that's, and that's not what I want to spend my time doing. What I want you to become skilled at is not memorizing a tit-for-tat script that somebody else wrote. I want you to become skilled at connecting with other people through dialogue, okay? Where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. You can actually talk to somebody else even if you disagree with them and you can manifest a logos between the two of you. You can do that. You can become more skilled at doing that. And that's what I want you to do. It's not about answering something and shutting something down and gaining consensus or destroying another viewpoint or pulling everybody to yours. It's about connecting with people despite your disagreements and finding a common reason to stay connected. And you have more meaning in your life that way. There's, I'm not saying people aren't going to change their minds, but you, you can't be so myopically focused on that, that you disrupt every other aspect of the situation. There's not a formula or a practice or technology that assures good faith communication, nor should there be. This is where it comes in for you to be skilled at it. Any approach that becomes a recognized signal of good faith will then be faked in bad faith. And that's the problem with the virtue signaling is that anytime you describe a virtue, people will start to mimic it with their actions and visualities, visuals, uh, without actually embodying the wisdom that would produce it 
organically. So any approach that became recognized as a signal of good faith, people would start mimicking it in bad faith and be faked. Right? So individuals must therefore continually innovate in their approach to communication. So it's, there's this fluidity to it. There's this constant ongoing, there's a motion to it, like a river that continues to flow. We must work together always to find new ways to break the hegemony of bad faith. This should be done as if the future of civilization depends on it because it does. And you could say the future of Christianity and the future of the, the body of Christ as well. All right? Absolutely. And so what I want you and me to do, I want you and me to actually play active roles in making dialogue between individuals better at every level, regardless of what is disagreed upon. And I want us to abandon bad faith argumentation. We have a super chat. We have a super chat from a person named Mr. Joseph who said, Thanks for the super chat, by the way. What should be the through line of communication between people? How do we create a bridge to establish good faith communication? Now, I think that kind of ties into the fact that there's not a formula or a practice that assures it, nor should there be. But here's, here's how I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to say, and I, and I had somebody talk to me recently who's, their kids, their adult kids who are married, went and joined a church with whom the parents very much disagree and they think it's wrong and all this kind of stuff. And what I asked these parents to do with these kids is to talk about it from a standpoint of genuine curiosity. So when I'm talking to another person, my real genuine goal, I'm not trying to persuade them. I'm not trying to talk them out of anything. I genuinely just want to understand where they are. Where are you mentally? Where are you emotionally? Where are you epistemically? Not because I'm trying to diagnose them, but because I have agape for them and I just want to know. All right. Now, perhaps the only thing that I would have to offer that person is maybe not a complete path to the transformation, uh, you know, path that they should be on, or the transformation trajectory that they should be on, but maybe I can interact with them in such a way to where they can see the next rung in the ladder, which before maybe was obscure to them. And maybe if you approach with genuine curiosity, what could happen is the, the interaction could produce in you the capacity for you to see your next rung in the ladder, which was not clear to you before. And you have to really approach, you have to really approach really believing, not faking this, but really believing that this person that you disagree with so much may have something for you because they probably do. And even if their attachment to the thing that you disagree with, even if you don't agree with that, there could be some signal in their reason for that. Could be some signal there in their reason for that. So what I would, I, I think the, the through line would be a genuine curiosity and a genuine humility and you engage in curiosity. Like I really, I see this person as vast and unexplored as the night sky that I look up into and my conversation with them is a spaceship where I get to go explore this little cosmos or this big, vast cosmos. And together, we can, we can explore unexplored, unexplored territory in this person's mind and see it develop, unfold, and bloom 
for the very first time right in front of us. And then we both walk away with more nuance and insight than we had before, regardless of what happened the first time. So I think curiosity is a good motivator for that. To really genuinely be interested in, in the other person and wanting to know where they're coming from and understanding that you, they could change you for the better after you dialogue with them. They, they, they really could. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast the Lord ordained strength because of thine enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. Okay? Now, we're going to have... Why am I doing this video? I'm doing this video so I have a common reference point like an anchor to refer back to because in the future we're going to be doing stuff maybe on the pandemic. Maybe we're going to be doing stuff on... Um, gender issues, transgenderism, um, those, what should a Christian response to these kinds of things be before we have those videos? And I have the slideshows almost finished now. They're, they're built up and I want to do these videos, but I need people to know this first before we talk about any of those kinds of topics. I need people to get this first and have this embedded as what you call like a course prerequisite. Get this down. Be working on being a good faith communicator before we do these other video, uh, videos on some of these controversial topics that I think Christians, we should be the tip of the spear for how to engage these things. But there's no answers for what Christians should do within Christianity. All you encounter are people just telling you these things are bad, wicked, and rotten. These people are going to hell and everything else. Well, that's, that's not going to help anything in society. Here's, the fact is this. You share a planet with these people. And of all people, Christians ought to be the most wise at how to share the planet with other people. And that's what we want to transform into. Regardless of whether they're saved or lost, any of that stuff, you share a planet with them. Can we walk in wisdom toward them that are without? Can we do that? All right, that's what I want to do. I want to walk toward, in wisdom toward them that are without, like the Bible says. And I think this understanding how to have good faith communications is a prerequisite before we consider any other particular topic where there could be some very serious and vehement disagreement, right? <laughs> I want to thank everybody for commenting. Thanks everybody for the super chats. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I hadn't really been able to spend a whole lot of time looking at the chats uh, because I've been trying to get through this content in this article. I recommend everybody go to it, read it on your own, think about it. Thanks for watching. May the Lord bless you and good day.